so much i do too makes me smile <laughs> jamming out over here <laughs> and we are back for another you know i really like doing this i love I it a lot of, i have a lot of fun doing this i do too uh i don't know if anybody else has a lot of fun listening to it but i certainly i don't care recording it <laughs> i don't care we we said we were going to do this as long as it was fun for us so <laughs> hopefully it's fun for everybody else as we go along but uh uh-huh, yeah. uh-huh, uh-huh. so we are season five technically it's episode three of season five but we are into the second half of our century total of episodes number 51 hot doggity dog (laughs) number 51 this is going to be episode number 51 so um yeah yeah that's that's how it is yeah Uh so here at the fusion underground What we try to do is we try to make sense of the world by having principal discussions about such topics, as, such topics as entertainment, current events, politics, and culture. Our mission is to educate people to become critical thinkers so they can live more empowered and happier lives. As always, I'm your host, Ben Mel Ramirez, and I'm joined in the virtual studio by my co-host, Jason Moret. How are you, sir? I'm good. I'm good. Living the dream. Happy to be here. Living the dream. Surviving the, the nightmare. Dream. So before we hit the record button... Before we hit the record button, you were telling me how uh, people were complaining. I had some complaints. Yes. And I had a couple of complaints too. Did you really? I did. I did have some a couple of complaints that literally started with, what, no YouTube? That was it. That was it. <laughs> <laughs> so... In all fairness, you and I have said from the get-go that we both have faces made for radio, so we right, didn't know right, right, how long right. the uh, YouTube video release of all of this was going to continue, But um, and we finally said, all right, well, let's try it with just the audio version, and literally within one week, I had more people blowing my face off with, yeah. what the heck, Where, where's, where's my video of YouTube goofballs? Right, so. right. Here we thought we were doing people a favor. Yeah, I just thought I was doing you guys a service. <laughs> Sorry. But apparent, apparently, people actually want to see us. You what know what I think it is? Out? I think what it's it's the reactions that you and I give each other oh, that, that I it? think really. Well, it's you got to be honest. I mean, uh-huh. I I wear my emotions on my sleeves for better or for worse, mm-hmm. and they do translate mm-hmm. in this face for better or worse too. So. Plus, when you're showing goofy video and you get my reactions of, oh, <laughs> you know, or whatever, that you don't get that on the radio. Yeah, well, fair enough, fair enough. So we're going to look at, at, you know, we've had some ideas about YouTube. Um, I have some concerns about YouTube. I'm going to come right out and say that. 
Uh, I do have some concerns about YouTube, but you know, if people want to watch us on YouTube, well, people want to watch us on YouTube. So I mean, we're going to have to revisit that and see if we can get everything up on YouTube again so that, um, you know, we don't piss anybody else off as worse than we normally do. So there you go. We'll figure, we'll figure it out. <laughs> hey, right. maybe we just be one more show canceled on YouTube. That might actually get us some more notoriety. Than anything right, else. right. <laughs> Give us something to talk about, if nothing else, right? Right. Yeah. So, okay. So, what are we going to talk about today? Well, we're gonna we're gonna have some stupid news. I'm liking that little segment. So, we've got some yeah. stu- some stupid news, particularly with regard to to racism, because you know we live in an environment in a culture now where everything is racist. Uh, we're going to talk about how uh, we're going to review how uh, carbs, carbohydrates are racist. We're going to talk a little <laughs> bit about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. We're also, we're, we're also going to talk about some racist prayer. Okay. Prayer, as in praying to God. As in talk, so, talking to God. Yeah. So we're going to talk about being a racist during your actual discussions to God. Yes, we're gonna we're gonna bring that up on the show. Okay, and then we're gonna talk about something that's uh, well, not contentious. I really don't understand the word for it. Why, why don't you go ahead and explain it? You were just talking about it before we came on, before we started it recording. Oh, um, how would you how would you I, frame the topic for everybody? Um, I I want to talk about the the benefits and shortfalls of disassociation in our professional and personal professions good way to sum that up yeah so let's so let's do that okay all right so uh we're gonna get into uh so let's talk about racism for a second particularly with how um particularly with how carbs are racist racist I'm so intrigued. I can barely stand myself right now. Can you, Please can you? tell me. You can barely, barely yes. stand yourself. Well, I actually my, gonna... my waistline is is waiting on bated breath. <laughs> I, I am actually going to uh, to display this for you because I, you need to uh, you need to take in the full beauty of this clip. I don't know where this was filmed or what this is for. Uh, so I don't know if you can see my screen right now. There are um, quite a number of women, a few dozen women on some, what looks like a television set, but it's like a round table, almost like you would see on Oprah. Yeah, and, and the, the floor says black women on the con- On the conversation. On the conversation, okay. Own the conversation, I think that's what it says. Is own that what it conver- says? Yeah, okay. own the conversation. So, um, well, I, I can't really do this this justice. You just have to listen. To it. <laughs> okay, okay. Okay. So yeah, I the, I mean the, the the thing is before before I hit the, you you just have to you, you just have to appreciate. <laughs> what, what? Yeah, you, you can't even hit play without. No, I, <laughs> I, I, because I, I had to see your face. So I had to turn the video panel back on um, before I hit the play. The play button is right in front of me. I can hit the play button. Okay. Okay. I need, I need you, I need you to pay attention 
because I need you to drink in the full amazement that is this clip. So here I, I, I'm you can't aware. get access to good health care, good insurance. The research says that black women, when we do the same diets as white women, we lose less weight and we lose it slower, even when we're following the diet than our white women counterparts. And what and what public health practitioners think is that our stress responses in the body change our metabolism. It's literally that the racism that you're experiencing and the struggle to make ends meet actually means the diet don't work for you the same. So fat black okay. women are fat because racism. You heard that, right? I, I did well, okay. What she's what she was saying was that because of racism mm -hmm. in the world, it mm -hmm. causes more stress on black women. Therefore, they cannot diet and lose weight the same as white women. Right, because of racism. Because racism. Because racism increased. Uh huh. I, I don't. I don't know about you. Uh huh. But the only time I think about racism is when I watch stupid stuff like this. Yeah. Or when you and I yeah. talk about stupid stuff like this. And I can sure as heck tell you that my diet isn't thinking about whether or not it's dealing with racism at the same time. Now. Now, this is going to sound this is this is going to sound this this is going to sound really mean. Okay. I want to I want to just uh, How much uh, racism did these two women on the right here experience judging by their own argument? Well, by the definition of black women who are obese cannot diet because of racism, then I would say these two women on the right-hand side see racism a whole heck of a lot. Yeah, yeah. It's like and regardless of how many down. donut shops they must pass along the way. I mean, come on. <laughs> this is this is like this is an example of we're not going to be responsible for any actions that we that we perform on a daily basis. We're just going to create some argument here, arbitrary argument. My body can't process carbohydrates and sugars properly because i experience racism every day you know what you own a big portion you own what you put in your body you own whether or not you get up off the couch and you walk around the block a few times or go to the gym you own all of that you own how many times you put food in your mouth i don't think white women are coming over to this woman's house and holding her down and forcing lard down her gullet i just no call me crazy but i don't think that that's happening no. Well, and you know, um, I would say his, Hispanics, Americans, <laughs> um, they have to diet and do other things too, to try and lose weight. And I don't know if the amount of racism is disproportionate to that of black women. And Lucy, you can speak to that better than I can, but do you feel that Hispanic women who are large are that way because they also experience racism and therefore cannot lose weight? No, they, they, they're overweight because, well, Mexican food is fattening. It's made with <laughs> lard and cheese and 
tons of carbohydrates. Let's face it, enchiladas are great, yeah. but they're also not health food. Well, and look at where our obesity tends to be a, a bigger problem. And we'll take it out of a, a racial demographic, but just look at the, the um, well, this, the deep South where everything is fried and everything is, you know, chitlins and lard and, and yeah. And there's a lot of white people down there who are really dang big because they don't eat well and they but don't let, exercise well, but that's but, their issue. Not but because also, they're. Yeah. But, but also keep in mind, too, if we're talking about poorer communities or at least inner city communities, inner city communities who happen to um, be around a lot of fast food, a lot of very mm -hmm. easy takeout restaurants. Let's face it. Calories are cheap in America. Yeah. You yes. can go to the you can go to the local Circle K or QT and you can buy 5000 calories for like a couple of bucks and stuff your face. It's cheap. So yeah, sure. if you have a lot of inner city where the, the, the populations are, are poorer, mm -hmm. well, they're going to get a lot of bang for their buck if they're just looking at dollars to calorie ratio. Well, sure. If, if you, if you eat <clears throat> fast but that's food, a McDonald's, choice. Sonic, Burger King, you know, whatever, five out of the seven days a week, guess what? You're, You're going to be, that's huge. not dieting. That's going to be no, big. You're, you're going to be huge, right? And they don't care whether you're white, black, Hispanic, African American, Native American, Hindu, Muslim. It doesn't right. matter. It doesn't matter. Now, yes, there are the, you know there are going to be people that will hear this and say, well, you know, body types are different. Of course they are. Sure, I'm not the absolutely tall, they are. I don't have the tall, slender build. I have to, I have to not eat because you know what? I like food. God damn it. I like the, I like the, the, just the comfort of shoving food into my face. It just, there's something just nice about that. And you know what? I have one of those, one of those physiques and everything that if I just did that, I would be gigantimous. Yes, you would. I would be absolutely huge because I, I just, I, I don't have that kind of metabolism. So I get that there are different body shapes. I get all that. But yep. you know what? You still own your part of it. Absolutely. And you know, I, I, I'm guilty of my own food pleasures. Um, I, I don't eat breakfast well. I rarely ever eat lunch. Um, so I eat dinner when I come home. That's my one meal. And then guess what? Right around nine o'clock, I'm raiding the fridge. It's time for my snack time. And I will snack and eat. And, and I, I can cook a second dinner at nine, nine thirty. Other people have seen me do it, and I can do that almost religiously every night. I'm lucky I'm not a house with that kind of eating habit, but yeah. I'm I'm not I'm probably not going to be that guy either. I will get a gut, but I won't be I won't be huge from neck to ankles. I just I just know yeah. I won't. It's just not who I am. But so that doesn't mean that's that way because I'm white. It's just not my body type. Yeah. And keeping in mind, when I raid the fridge at 9.15, I'm going for, you know, sometimes I might have celery with, like, yogurt or crap like that, or not yogurt, but um, cottage cheese. That might be as fattening as I get. I'm not going and scarfing down a, a box of Edelman donut holes and followed up with a bag of chips. Well, good stuff. So let's, let's talk, let's extend this whole conversation on racism to prayer. <clears throat> 
Okay. Yeah, because talking to God, that's when I get the... At least that's when I'm honest. So that must be where my inner racism comes out. Right. So um, I did not take these pictures. I'm not going to show them on the screen just because, well, there's no reason to. Um, But there's a... I found this these pictures posted on social media today uh somebody was at target and there i guess there's a book section in target and they found this book the hardcover book and it's called a rhythm of prayer a collection of meditations for renewal edited by sarah bessie okay that's seems totally normal there's some the dots on the front cover it's like a like circular dots or whatever it looks you know very benign there's no there's no person there's no people on the cover or anything like that it looks very benign until you take a look at um well some of the pages in the actual book there's a there's a, a section here so these are different prayers that other uh writers have written and now have been edited together into the single book. And one of the sections is titled Prayer of a Weary Black Woman by Dr. Shaniqua Walker Barnes. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> Get a load of this. It starts off, Dear God, please help me to hate white people. What? <laughs> I will read no. that first sentence I, again. I, 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 yeah, because because I your microphone I think cut out there. I, I kind of missed you. So start say that again. Dear God, please help me to hate white people. First sentence, right out of the gate, blam. We're on our hate train, praying to God. It goes on and says, or at least to want to hate them. So even if you don't hate white people, you you say this prayer asking to asking for God to grant you the energy to hate them, or at least to want to hate them. But when does hate in any way, shape, or form come from God? God is all things. So let me let okay. Let's, uh, let's continue. At least I want to stop caring about them individually and collectively. I want to stop caring about their misguided racist souls to stop believing that they can be better, that they can stop being racist. I am not talking about the white anti-racist allies who have taken up the struggle against racism with their whole lives. The ones who stand vigil for weeks outside jails where black women are killed, who show up in Charlottesville and Ferguson and Baltimore and Pasadena to take a public stand against racism and police brutality who are so committed to fighting white supremacy that their own lives bear the wounds of its scars. That is one sentence. I'm gonna, I, I have to share the screen for this. <laughs> <laughs> this, look at this. This is, the, this is the picture. You can see the book. Dear, look, dear God, please help me to hate white people. Look at the second paragraph. This is one sentence. This is, this paragraph, that's not a paragraph, that's one sentence. Yeah, it's a, it goes on. No, those aren't the people I want to hate. I'm not even talking about the ardent racists either, the strident segregationists, 
who mow down nonviolent anti-racist protesters, who open fire on black churchgoers, or who plot acts of racial terrorism hoping to start a race war. Those people are already in hell. Isn't that just amazing? That's that that's that's awesome. That is just absolutely awesome. <clears throat> and I mean that in the true definition of the word is something that inspires awe and wonder. And and <clears throat> I'm in awe and I wonder what the hell. L- listen to this part. The prayer goes on. My prayer is that you would help me to hate the other white people. You know, the nice ones. The Fox News loving Trump supporting voters who don't see color, but who make thinly veiled racist comments about those people. The people who are happy to have me over for dinner, but alert the neighborhood watch anytime an unrecognized person of color passes their house. How do they know that happens? How do they know that happens? I, I don't understand how that happens. How, do you, how would you be alerted? You go through a neighborhood and the white and the, the neighborhood watch gets alerted. I don't know how she even, talk about creating assumptions. The people who welcome black people in their churches and small groups, but brand us as heretics, if we suggest that Christianity is concerned with the poor and the oppressed. The people who politely tell us that we can leave when we call out the racial microaggressions we experience in their ministries. How about, how about this little passage? Lord, if it be your will, harden my heart. Stop me from striving to see the best in people. Really? <laughs> really? That's what you're going to pray for? Stop me from being hopeful that white people can do and be better. Let me imagine them instead as white hooded robes standing in front of burning crosses. Let me see them as hopelessly unrepentant, reprobate bigots who have blasphemed the Holy Spirit and who need to be handed over to the evil one. Let me be like Jonah, unwilling for my enemies to change, or like Lot, able to walk away from them and their sinfulness without trying to call them to repentance. Let me stop seeing them as members of the same body. Wow. Right? Talk about dehumanizing. Actually, that's funny. That might actually tie into what I was looking at talking about tonight. <laughs> this, this is just, this uh, is that's I, just insane. I, I'm I'm at an absolute loss. So let's I, talk I'm about, at an absolute loss. So this let's, is a great segue into um, talking about your topic. Yeah. Well, and imagine if you will, if that was written as a prayer of a weary white woman sure. talking about black people. Sure. Could you imagine the kind of outrage that that would happen? Those books would be torn from the shelves. They would be ripped to shreds, burned, and the publisher probably sued fine and they would have to discontinue. I mean, if we can get rid of If I Ran a Zoo by Dr. Seuss mm-hmm. for a loose implication, how is that not racist? How is that not racist? What? How about how about hold on before before we do this we need we need we need a palate cleanser. Okay, thank you. I can because I that. know that I know that was really. Uh, oh, yeah. I know that I, was really heavy, right? 
So we need a good, we need a good palate cleanser. So I, I have one for you. I have a good little palate cleanser. So let me just uh, get this one ready here because uh, I think, I think you'll like this. Okay. So here we have just a, a young woman. She's a weather forecaster on uh, the local five news station. And uh, well, let's just, uh, let's just give it a whirl. I did make a mistake during our Catterday segment. I used a submitted photo of a cat with an inappropriate name. I don't want to use the name here, but I never intended to hurt or offend anyone by using that picture that was actually just given to me. I understand my mistake and I am deeply sorry. And in the future, I will absolutely be more diligent with this content to ensure it never happens again. 15 degrees below zero right now. So certainly this is kind of weather for the cats. So we've got our Catterday night forecast for you now where we are featuring Kipper here, thanks to Debbie Alexander. What was it? The cat's name is Hitler. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it looks like it's got a mustache. <laughs> so... That's awesome. Look at that that cat. Now that you say it, I totally get it. Oh, my God. That's the coolest name for that cat with that face. I'm so sorry, but that's awesome. That's like the cat's name, Hitler. So she had to go back and actually apologize for it. Oh, the cat's name is Hitler. Let's be honest here. That cat's got a Hitler mustache. He does. Yes. He's got a Hitler stash. <laughs> I guarantee you one person complained about that. And I oh, guarantee yeah. you, I guarantee you, it wasn't even a Jewish person. No. Uh, just safe money in no, Vegas. No. Safe mm. money in Vegas. Wasn't even a Jewish person. No. I'd be willing to bet. I don't know 100%, but... I'm willing to bet. I'm willing to bet. I'm willing oh, to wager yeah. that bet. No, I, I'm good. Anybody out there want to take me on it? I got 20, so there ain't no way that was a Jewish person that lodged a complaint. The fact that she had to go on the air and apologize because That's somebody sent ridiculous. in. Now, you should have known, I guess. Like, she yeah. wasn't on the Fusion Underground, for crying out loud. Right, she's on television. I guess if somebody <laughs> sends you a picture of a cat that looks like Hitler, who's named Kitler, <laughs> you probably shouldn't put that on television. But come on, that's funny. That's funny. Get over it, man. Goodness gracious, that's just downright funny. Why can't we're too serious? Get over it for crying out loud. It's a cat. <laughs> With a Hitler mustache, and they Hitler named it mustache. Kittler. That's funny. Very funny. Yeah. All right. What about dehumanizing? Dehumanizing. Yeah. Because Hitler did that. Let's talk well, about that. Why don't you yes, set the stage did. for the? Why don't you set the stage for this topic? So my wife and I were we were we were traveling down um, 
to see my mom taking the kids down to see grandma and grandpa. And, and we were actually discussing our, our family dog just passed away. Um, so we were talking about, I guess, kind of a natural separation in that and how hard death in the family is, even when it is your fur baby versus your, your immediate blood family. Um, but she was asking, you know, how people deal with that on a regular basis. And, and so I brought up, we were talking about healthcare cause I, I worked in healthcare and I've been around death, unfortunately, more often than not. And I, I was saying that there's actually a, um, a disassociation disconnection and almost dehumanization in the healthcare profession in particular, again, just using it as an example, not that it's, it's, um, unique to that, but when you have, and I, I told her, I said, when you're in healthcare, patients die, but people don't die. People don't die in the emergency room. Patients die. And, and she didn't understand what I meant by that. I did. And I think healthcare professionals out there, if you're within a, in earshot of me, you know exactly what I'm talking about. When you have somebody that you're a patient that you're working with, trying to treat, um, and they pass, the patient passes away. The patient dies. Mr. or Mrs. Smith don't. You know, Bob, Jill, Joanne, or Frank, they don't die. Your patient does. And it's a, it's a discon, disassociation, disconnection um, that I think is, is almost necessary in the profession to kind of protect the the emotions and the the uh, psyche um from getting too connected to the person as an individual and and allowing the emotions to be separated so you can treat the condition treat the the injuries treat the events and should that inevitable worst happen it allows the healthcare professional to separate and continue to treat others um i know that sounds callous from the human perspective, and it is to a point, it very much so is, but I believe that's essentially necessary in that profession to make sure that that person is able to focus on the ailments and the injury and to the mass of people who are there seeking treatment. Well, because what is the alternative? The alternative is you can't do the job. Correct. Uh, if, if, you Correct. Were, if, if you were empathetic to the point where you see everybody not as patients, but you see them as an uncle, a father, a wife, a sister, a child, a daughter, a son, etc. That is a very difficult burden to bear psychologically and emotionally. And it becomes, it could for some, for many people, it could become very paralyzing to the job. So you have to, sure. You have to learn to distance yourself or compartmentalize so that those emotions don't overtake you because there's right behind Correct. that one person. If the patient, if right behind that first patient who dies, there are 10 other people who need your help. And yes, mm -hmm. that one person has passed away, but you have to put that somewhere so that you can carry forward and just be Correct. about your profession. Yep. Well, and it's, <clears throat> excuse me, it's interesting, you know, a, a lot of people are out there are trained in, in CPR or even how to use an AED. Um, 
but you talk to people when, whenever there's a situation, especially in a family or, or even in a place of business where it's somebody where they work, unless that person is a healthcare professional, it seems like that training that you've had just kind of goes out the window and people lose their mind. And I think more than just it's, it's, it's easy to say, well, that's because you don't practice those skills. I got news for you. Unless you work in the ER or in EMS, you don't practice chest compressions and use of an AED on a daily basis in, in the healthcare profession. You, you don't. You, you go through your annual or semi-annual training every once in a while, but that's it. So it's easy to say, well, that's because you're not trained and you don't practice those skills. No, I don't believe that that's the case. Is that a contributing factor? Sure. But it's because in those situations, you automatically associate, you know, oh my gosh, Bob is on the floor. Whomever Bob is to you, that's Bob. It's not a patient. And if you've ever been in a family situation where somebody's collapsed or had an emergency, if there's anybody who's actually been in that healthcare profession, they all, all situations, you hear the same story. You know, so Jason came in. And all of a sudden he like turned a switch and flipped modes. And all of a sudden he was in charge and take and barking orders and doing this and you go do that. And it was like creepy how different that person was. And I, I don't know if you've heard similar stories, but it happens all the time. It's not because that person's necessarily trained in that. It's because they've trained a disassociation from person to patient. Well, I, I think anybody can have that skill. I don't think it has to be in the medical profession. I think there are. Oh, no, absolutely. I, I think there are many types of professions where just people in general. I think there's a characteristic psychologically that certain people have to be able to go completely into work mode. Right? Sure. To switch sure. from, okay, I'm just going to turn all of my emotions off and I'm just going to go into doing mode and and take care of business. And I think there are, I think there are people who have that capability uh, but if you choose to go into the medical profession, you have to develop that sooner or later. I think some people naturally have it, are naturally born to that. But if you go into any kind of an environment or any kind of a profession where essentially life could be on the line, you have to be able to, even if you're, even if you're a salmon fisherman, you're <laughs> dealing with life and death type of situations all the time, right? You can't, you, you can't just be Mr. Nice Guy all the time. You have right. to be, we're business and we're doing, and we're task oriented and we get it, the job done. And then, and then we can decompress. And because what if somebody goes over the sea trawler in the middle of the, you know, in the middle of the Pacific in the Arctic in December, right? You have to just react. You can't, you don't have time to sit and contemplate and be sad. Right. And, and you talked about when you were working on the, in the Navy, um, you know, it's, it's business. You follow procedures, you follow your job. It is absolutely precise in what you have to do. Cause if you don't, you make a mistake, people die. Sure. I mean, <clears throat> so there, is, it doesn't matter about your lies those and set those aside. Yeah. Um, but this, so <laughs> there's some benefits to this, to, to this ability in human beings to compartmentalize. We can, we can, do these very difficult jobs, um, such as being uh, working in an emergency room, being a firefighter, or what have you, being a first responder, right? The the types of scenarios that those people encounter on a daily basis can be pretty darn gruesome, and they have to be able to carry forward. But I think there's a there's a darker side 
that can emerge from this capability or from this ability to deal with right. your emotions this way. Yep. No, and and so yeah, we did talk about we talked about some of the benefits. And I, I do think that there are, like you said, there are professions that that is inherently necessary in order for those jobs to get done, which those jobs are inherent are necessary. Um, however, with that, I guess, disassociation from the human condition, and oddly enough, your, I think your prayer that you were talking about actually mirrors that a lot, is you forget that people that you can actually use that same <clears throat> skill, if you want to call it that, that same um, mindset to treat other people who, I guess, may not agree with you or may be on the other opposing side as not human. You can disassociate that to a point. You and I, you and I talked about that. So Lost your mic. <clears throat> Yeah. We lost is we have technical difficulties. Jason's mic is inoperable. So but we were we were talking about the ability to um, you know how some of the some of the negative things that can that can come about from being able to compartmentalize. Is your mic back? I don't know. Sort of. Okay. How about now? <laughs> yep. Now I can we can hear you just fine. Okay. So <clears throat> you know, we, we talked about um, where this is actually applicable to uh, military and soldiers on the battlefield. You know, we have, we have human beings on opposing sides of the firing line. They are still human beings. Mm -hmm. And yet those soldiers have a very direct job to do. And if, you, if you're looking down the, down the barrel of a gun, literally at another human being, that's going to be very difficult to pull that trigger. And it's going to be very difficult to do what is absolutely necessary to protect further loss of life or protect whatever. I mean, it, that's almost impossible. The job of a soldier is, I mean, it's almost impossible. The only way you can actually accomplish that is by disconnecting disassociation and dehumanizing the opposition. They're not human beings. They are the enemy. Mm -hmm. And they are less than human. They are not human. Well, we saw this during World War II. All you have to do is go out to Google and Google like World War II anti-Semitism propaganda. Okay. And this was, what you'll find is you will find cartoons, drawings, etc., depicting Jews in very monstrous type of forms, over-exaggerating facial features like their nose, making them appear as if they're like vampiric or even werewolf-like qualities, uh, propaganda where they're lurking in the shadows, almost like they're, they're hunting. Uh, you'll often see within World War II propaganda, Jews, um, you know, these pictures where Jews are coveting children, like they're going to take and eat your children or something like that. And all that was done to dehumanize the Jews and make them less than human, to literally make other people, non-Jews, see the Jews as not even worthy of human compassion, sympathy, etc. 
and by doing that, it became very easy for the population to rat out on their Jewish neighbors, turn them over to the state. Uh, there were people in Germany, Poland, etc., that they knew Jews were disappearing. They knew they were being sent away. They knew that um, Jews were being murdered in, in massive droves. Uh, and they were willing to turn their fellow Jews over to, to the police so that they could be murdered. Um, so we've seen this type of, of dehumanization before. The Soviet Union did it after the Bolshevik Revolution. They did it in Ukraine and, and um, in various other places so that they could rally support around the communist cause. And what concerns me, I know it concerns you too, is we're seeing this present in our own culture here in the United States. We, I just read the passages about praying to God to give, them, to give somebody strength to hate white people. Mm-hmm. And literally in the prayer to God, dehumanizing white people. And even the, and not just, not just the people who are, are, who white people who are bigots, but the hidden nice people, yeah, people that are literally the Trumpers and, you know, the, the people that just literally have an opposing political viewpoint, just because you and I happen to think that lower taxes is a good thing. We are now immediately put at odds against people who would buy that kind of a book and say those kinds of prayers. Right. And that, that, that is quite honestly, it's, it's frightening and it's disgraceful all at the same time. Right. Well, and <clears throat> what I was, what I went into a little bit further with, mm-hmm. with my wife, when we were discussing this exact same thing, you know, we, we're seeing that, that dehumanize, dehumanization and disconnection from, um, opposing ideologies here in this country right now. And it's not for the sake of, of splitting the human condition. It's simply weaponizing people against political and ideological enemies. You know, I, I guess part of what upsets me the most about it is the absolute ignorance of the masses of people who are going along with a lot of the, the social push towards this separation that's happening in our country right now. This is not about being sympathetic or empathetic to a cause. When we, when we listen, when you hear the term sympathetic and empathetic, that makes us all feel like it's something we should, we should feel guilty about opposing. I mean, we should want to be sympathetic. We should want to be empathetic to our, our fellow human beings. And yes, you should. However, be cognizant of the idea that this is not about being sympathetic or empathetic to those who have been mistreated, misused, um, underrepresented, or abused for years. This is about using people for their empathy and compassion to turn them into walking, talking, acting weapons against political and ideological enemies. You are not righteous because of your feeling of wanting to be empathetic towards your neighbor. You are being used and abused 
as a means and leverage against somebody else's ideological enemy. It's, it's saddening to see the naivety of the masses of people who are going along with this because it's, uh, it, it's, it's not for an altruistic idea. You have, you have people who are on the opposite ends of the politic, political and ideological spectrum who are really not seeing each other as human beings anymore. There is no such thing as seeing human beings on opposing sides of the aisle. These are enemies, and enemies must be targeted. That's where um, cancel culture is absolutely a weapon. It's a weapon against your political and ideological enemy. It is the bullet that comes out of the gun. That's what will kill these people. You destroy their livelihood. That's weaponizing. <clears throat> and it's the people that go along with it and agree with it. You are the tools. Don't be a tool. Well, well and the thing that most people need to realize is you, if you think that you're, you wouldn't uh, commit atrocities against your fellow man, you're, you're sorely mistaken. Um, it takes a very, very strong individual to withstand a large wave that's coming at you of ideological hatred. So, and, and my guess is most people would not be able to, to weather that storm because most people will think of their own family members and say, well, if I don't do this, then I'm going to be targeted and my family is going to be targeted. And so easier for me to kill somebody that everybody says is my enemy so that my family can survive. And if you don't think, if, if you think for a second that it's easy to stand up against that ideological hatred and say, well, I wouldn't succumb to that. You need to think long and hard about that because that ability exists in all of us. And so the only way that you can truly combat that is you have to spend time thinking about it. What would you do in that situation? Would you be willing to sacrifice your own life so that you can at least remain true? But most people would not be willing to do that. Sure. It's a very difficult well, thing to say no. And, and I, I can absolutely empathize with that. I really can. Um, and you're right. It's tough. <clears throat> the, <clears throat> the argument that I make and I have made before is if you're not willing to stand now against it, don't think that that is going to be any easier later because this only gets worse. The more ground we give, the bigger, the bigger occupation it has. Well, you know, this is why I think uh, this lends into or leads into why I think the culture is so important, okay? Mm -hmm. There are far too many people, people who share much of the same political beliefs and values and principles that, that you and I have, okay? Um, and they're sitting out there, they're minding their own business, they're going about their daily lives. And somewhere, somewhere out there in the, in the interwebs, somebody comes up with this idea, hey, well, we should ban Dr. Seuss books. And most people, they find it absurd. 
They feel there's no reason to do that, mm-hmm. but they don't say anything. Right. And they say, well, it's just a Dr. Seuss book, but it's never just a Dr. Seuss book. Right. Every time you, you clam up, every time you shut up and you just say, well, just give it to him. Just let him have this one thing. What you're doing is you're retreating. And every time you retreat, you just embolden the other side to look for and take more territory. Right. And they're just going to take another step and they're going to take another step and they're going to take another step. And if you, if you start losing that culture and for all intents and purposes, I think we've already lost it. If you lose that culture, you lose the political arguments. You wind up losing the policy arguments because that side now has grown so massive that you you can't you do not have an argument against them. That's why it is so vitally important. It doesn't matter if it seems so insignificant and small. If you can't stand up for the small things, why the hell does anybody think you're going to stand up for the big things? Yeah. Well, the and that's they're hard. The little that's things the are the idea easy. though. That, that's the argument we always hear. And, and I'm not right. talking from anyone that, that's opposing, let's just say, our, um, our, our political ideological viewpoint. I'm talking to people that actually align with the same things that you and I do. That's what I keep hearing. You know what? That doesn't really affect me much. That's not a big deal. When it comes down to uh, when it's the big stuff that really matters, then we're going to have a problem. And I, I've said it over and over again to people I, I love dearly. No, you're absolutely wrong. If you're not going to stand up for Dr. Seuss and the little things that don't matter, by the time it gets to your front doorstep and it's stuff that really, really does matter to you, that will have snowballed to a point that it is absolutely impossible to stop. And it will steamroll you. You can't stand up against it. You'll be crushed underneath it. Right. Because because the small small little, uh, little secret... society is any group naturally progresses towards chaos and and towards um corruption you take small little steps towards that all the time and so every time when that anytime the this opposition says we're going to go after tradition we're going to go after these traditional things that have been around for a while we're going to erode those little traditional things. Why? Because it's, it's just a couple of, it's Dr. Seuss, but it's not all Dr. Seuss books. It's just a couple. Right. That's it. That's all we're talking about. Yes. But every time you give up those, that the couple of little things, they're just going to take more. And you say, well, when did that ever happen? It happened the very next week with Pepe Le Pew. Yeah. It happened the very next week. Days later, they switched and said, well, now we have to go after Pepe Le Pew. Mm-hmm. After just going after, and it worked. Guess what? The new Space Jam movie came out. They Warner Brothers came out and they removed Pepe Le Pew because of all of the gyrations around Dr. Seuss and all of that. But yet they put in the picture, they actually put in in the background, I saw a clip of it today, uh, out of the new Space Jam movie. You know, they removed Pepe Le Pew. Why? Because he was problematic. He was, he represents rape culture. Rape culture. <laughs> Yet in the background, in one of the scenes, there's a scene where there's all these different characters in, in the background during one of the games or whatever. Mm-hmm. And in the background, 
is the original rape gang from A Clockwork Orange. No. It's, yes, you can see that because that property is owned by Warner Brothers. And you can see three of the characters dressed in their white suits with their bowler caps on, cheering with the larger crowd. This is the original rape gang. There's a five or 10 minute rape scene in A Clockwork Orange. Yeah. Now, but I don't know whether you is bad. Are you I don't know whether me? to be disgusted or actually applaud Warner Brothers because that was either a complete oversight, which I'm then disgusted, and, and you guys removed Pepe Le Pew, and therefore I'm disgusted to heck with you, Warner Brothers, or somebody deliberately put that in there as a big middle finger to all the anti-rape yeah. culture jackasses, in which case I have to slow clap. Yeah. If that's the case, you get a slow clap from me. <laughs> well right. done. So again, if you can't stand up for the small things, why on earth are you going to stand up for the large things? And if you say, well, the small things, they don't really matter. They matter a lot. Yep. They matter a lot because by the time you say, okay, now it's time for me to fight. Can you imagine if you're playing a game of chess and every single time your opponent took one of your pieces, you're like, oh, that, that piece wasn't that big of a deal. Oh, that piece wasn't that big of a deal. I'll get them later. Oh, that piece wasn't a big of Eventually, you're going to run out of damn pieces. Yeah. <laughs> and you're not going to be able to win the game. Right. Right. Unless you stop and think, wait a minute, did I, did I give that piece to my opponent or are they just taking it from me? Right. right? There's a difference on, how, on that strategy. And yes, you have to give some ground in order to gain some other ground. Right. But, um, but you don't give up on the traditional stuff. Well, and that's just it. I understand the idea. Well, okay, we'll give a little. But there's got to be the, I'm going to take on the other side. Correct. That's, that is the retort in chess. Yeah. Yes, you might sacrifice a pawn, but that's so that your bishop can then advance on the king or queen on the opposing side. Right. That's not just, I'll give up my pawn so maybe they'll just leave me alone and we'll get to move pieces around the board together in peace and harmony prevailing for you know however long we decide we want to play the game. Right. Nobody That's plays chess that way. way. No, we don't, we don't play chess by just casually moving pieces around and not taking anything. Well, if they just take that, if they took that one pawn, so they're not going to take any more pieces. No, they're going to come back and take another piece. Well, they took right. that other piece now. Oh, well, let's just move pieces around. We're just going to push these. To what end? Mm -hmm. The opponent here is playing a game. Yep. And they're taking away the cultural icons that are your chess pieces. And if you, and it, at some point, you're going to wake up one day and you're not going to have any chess pieces left. No. And that's what's happened to our, to our culture. That's what's happening yep. to our society. And, and you will hear, checkmate. And that checkmate is where you have no moves left to provide sanctuary for you. Right. You are surrounded. You are out of moves. They are going to overtake you. And that is where we're headed. That's where this, the idea of compassion and empathy being used to weaponize the masses, it's happening and we're allowing it to happen. And the idea that this dehumanization and disconnection is being implemented amongst social media and the mass media so that anybody on the opposing side of the aisle is no longer a human being and they are an enemy it's plain as day as soon as you actually take a step back and look at it. When's the last time you saw these people from another place? No, it's those people 
Listen to Kamala Harris and AOC talk about some of these um, these poor people. No, they say those people and, when they and talk many, about their political and how, opponents and their ideological opponents. And how many cultural battles did you give up? Have we given up as a society and just said, oh, that that's just a little thing. No big deal. The, those little things, those little defeats, all those little retreats have now summed up to a book being published that says, dear God, let me hate white people. And we are okay and, with this. And what is the next step from there? You don't have, right. you don't need us to draw the dots, but it's very easy to start putting it together. Of We've already had people, people in media, journalists saying that gulags were not that big of a deal and Republicans and, and Trump supporters should be sent off to gulags for re-education camps. We've already had right after the 2020 election, we had people like AOC come out and say that the entire South needed to be re-educated. Yep. Yep. The writing is on the wall. And if you keep giving up all of these little traditional, all of these little tradition battles and everything like that, because, well, that wasn't, it's just Dr. Seuss book. You're eventually going to wake up and you're going to be the one in the gulag. Yep. Yeah. All right. Good talk. Good talk. Yeah, good talk. All right. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for listening. Again, keep an eye out on YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Remember, you can find all of our stuff at fusionunderground.net. I'm Manuel Ramirez, and he is Jason Arrett. You've been listening to Fusion Underground. Peace, we're late. Have a good night.